Hold on. Okay, for those of you that weren't here last week, uh, Mark passed his orals at seminary. So, yeah. Now, was, was, you've taken Hebrew. Yes. We both have. Yes. Was that your translation? That was my translation. How many of you have said exceedingliness during the Shema before? If you've been in here, you've said it a time or two because I, I love that translation because it actually, what most people say is heart, mind, and strength. And strength just means like, what, your physical capacity? No, that word in Hebrew is like everything else, let, we will give you our heart, our mind, and our everything else, our total exceedingliness. So are you going to start like interpreting scripture every time? If Sunday? I need to, yes. I mean, I do it all the time, so. <laughs> I know. Isn't it what's, but I mean, just as long as we let them in on it, right? Yeah, let them in yeah. on it. That's right. Oh, that was good. Good. It's something good about looking at a refreshing translation. You know, I read the Bible every year. Uh, in fact, we're getting closer to the end of the year. You should think about doing that. If you've never done it, uh, read it next year. I do take a different translation every year and read it just to kind of give fresh ideas and new ideas to what's, what the Word is talking about. Let's stop and pray before we talk today. Father, we, uh, more than any time in the history of our world, we are very acutely aware of people suffering the world over. I mean, just right here close to home, Lord, all the, the victims in Las Vegas. and A little bit further away, we have the tornado uh, victim, I mean, the hurricane victims in the Gulf and uh, the Caribbean and, Father, some of the regimes around the world that are oppressing people and poverty that goes on. And, Lord, uh, boy, we, it, it just confirms what you've said about how much we need you. Lord, we confess to you that it bothers us. We're troubled by it. We're troubled by the tensions between us and other nations and even other nations that don't involve us. We're troubled by that. We are grateful that we can call upon you as our God because you care about this creation. In fact, you care about these people more than we do. We can only imagine if we have this little bit of sorrow and anxiety, you must have more. So we pray, Lord, that you continue to be compassionate and merciful to our world. We're tired, our world is, and that you would continue to bring your blessing out as you said to Abraham, to all the nations, be a blessing to them, Lord. Thank you that you're a God that we can come to and trust. We're very grateful. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're in a series, um, The Road to Victory. Last week we looked at um, simplicity, and there we talked about what does it mean to live a simpler lifestyle and to use more of our resources, our money, our time to bless others. There we put in place the idea that God has blessed you to bless others, to be a blessing around you. So we talked a lot about generosity. This week is on the topic of generosity. So I set that up last week on purpose because when I talk about generosity, what's the first thing you think of? Money, right? Which is a good thing to think of. Give more, okay? And so um, that's kind of a, a traditional approach, and I'm in favor of that. The Lord talks a lot about being generous with our resources. But today I wanted to do something a little different, something I haven't done much of. Next month is my 40th anniversary in Christ. I don't know how that happened, where the years went. Uh, by God's grace and blessing, we've been all over the world. 
I've been more places than Nancy has, but she's been with me on a lot of those. I have the privilege of teaching, as you know, around the world. And I've, I've had a chance to reflect on this a lot over the years. And I want to go back and ask a different question. Rather than talk to you about giving more, which, you know, that's, uh, that's a good thing to talk about. I want to go back and ask the question, what is behind the generosity that should compel us? Last week I gave you a givingpledge.org, and if you went there and looked at all, you'll notice that there's a lot of non-Christians that are generous. What makes us different? Why is it unique to be a Christian and give? Non-Christian can do that just as well. How are we different? And what I want to do is introduce the concept of grace, which you're all very aware of, and I want to explore it with you. I don't have a particular Bible passage I'm going to work through, what I want to do is talk to you about 40 years of reflection and experiencing grace. And what is that like? And what does that mean? Most of you know I lost my first wife. I experienced grace. Experienced a lot of it. In fact, I experienced grace that I would have never experienced in any other way. The moment that she died, when her heart stopped, I was holding her. And uh, she, um, that was a hard moment tears. But I also started to chuckle at that same instance when I realized in that one second, the Lord just took away the most important person to me, and I still love him. My faith is real. That's grace. That's an example of grace. You know, those of you that are here two years ago, I had the privilege of telling you I have bladder cancer. Stood up here and told you that. I didn't want bladder cancer, didn't ask for it. Last thing I ever thought about, doctor was surprised. He was inside looking at something else and found a cancerous tumor. And um, I spent the night that night when I came home uh, in tears. Nancy and I did most of the night. And, um, and I thought about it and said, you know, Lord, uh, I still love you. If you want to take me home, that's okay. I'll be ready to go home if that's what you want. But I don't want to go home. I have a church. I love my church. What did Paul say in Philippians? To die is gain, but to be with you is much better. And uh, I have a church. I'm not done. I have grandkids. I'm not done. So if you don't mind, just take care of it. Because I got more work to do. And by God's grace, he did. By God's grace. He did. Lots of things in between all of that. Those are the two bookends so far, the big ones. Lots and lots of things in between that have forced me to really think through what is my theology of grace. And so I want to talk to you. I just want to share with you, kind of after 40 years, what I think about grace and what that means. But let me begin with this. Some of you know I've referred to this before. A book by Oz Guinness, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. This is an exploration into uh, evangelicalism in the West. It's uh, in our own culture. It's worth reading. The elders read it and the staff read it and several of the small groups, so some of you have read it. And um, he was part of a larger consortium of scholars who got together and wrote an evangelical manifesto. Evangelical manifesto is a statement of what it means to be an evangelical. I am an evangelical. Not ashamed of the term not going to hide from it, not embarrassed by it, but I am thor- thoroughly disappointed 
at the way it's being presented in the press by a very few very powerful people who say this is what an evangelical is that I don't necessarily agree with. It's now a bad word in our culture. It's come to be that, partly because it's become, it's come to be associated with certain political positions. Okay? That's a mistake. Evangelicalism, first and foremost, is about our belief in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not about politics. I think politics are important. Don't get me wrong. In fact, just recently, uh, one of my kids asked me, Dad, what do you think about President Trump? <sighs> hate that question. I really hate it with any, I get asked about any president. And I said, too big a question. You got to give me something better than that. And he goes, okay, economics. Oh, now I can answer the question. Foreign policy, now I can answer the question. Personal relational style, I can answer the question. Okay? Uh, and, and, and I can talk about what I like about it, what I don't like about it. Um, to be an evangelical does not mean that you are a right-wing conservative Republican. Don't confuse that. We have lots of people in our church with different political positions here. And we are evangelicals. So what I want to do is I want to read to you two of the defining characteristics of what it means to be an evangelical Okay? If you really want to explore it further, this is a great book to do it with. Or just go type Evangelical Manifesto and read the full manifesto and look at who signed it. People from all different faiths across our country, all different political persuasions signed it. So here are two defining characteristics. Evangelicalism must be defined theologically and not politically. I personally don't care what your political persuasion is. I'm just as happy having coffee with you if you're a Democrat as if you're a Republican. If you're conservative, if you're liberal, if you're progressive or whatever the terms are, you throw it out there. That doesn't matter to me. What I'm interested in is where's your faith? That's what evangelicalism is addressing. Evangelicalism must be defined theologically and not politically, confessionally, and certainly not culturally. Here's the second one, the next one. The evangelical message, good news by definition, that's what it means. Evangelical is good news. Okay? The angels came and delivered the euangelion, the good news that a Savior, today a Savior has been born to you. That's the good news. So the evangelical message, good news by definition, is overwhelmingly positive and always positive before it is negative. Always. Oh, sin is addressed in the Bible, but it's addressed for the specific purpose of helping you understand the good news of the grace of God. Sometimes I get challenged because I don't preach enough about sin up here. You know me by now. You've been with you four and a half years, and uh, that's who I am. You see... The Bible is a comedy, not a tragedy. The good guy has won. I don't care even what your sin is. Except as it interferes with your journey to Christ. I'm not offended. I think I've lived long enough to hear everything. I don't think you can surprise me. It's not important to me what your sin is. There's no shame in that. 
That's part of being humans. We talked a month ago about hypocrisy. We're all hypocrites, 100%. Let's own up to it and be real. Let's be honest about that. Hypocrisy is not the problem. Arrogance and pride is. We should welcome non-Christians to call us a hypocrite because that gives us a chance to humble ourselves and say, I know, and I don't want to be that way. We begin to separate ourselves from the world. And so the Bible talks a lot about sin. It does. You know why? So you can understand grace. Mark likes to say, I think this is great, perfect grammar. He learned this in seminary. If sin is huge, grace is hugelier. <laughs> Depending on how big your view of sin, that's how big your view of grace is. If you have a watered-down view of sin, you have a watered-down view of grace. They go together. That's why the Bible starts with sin. Romans 3 is a classic example of that. Paul starts with sin before he talks about grace. And what does he say? There is no one righteous, not even one. What do you think he means by that? He doesn't say most people are not righteous. There's no one righteous. And by the way, he's quoting the Old Testament. So it's scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that's, if that's not bad enough, he goes further. <clears throat> There's not even one who does good. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Hard to get used to that. That's why theologians talk about sin as being ubiquitous. It is everywhere present in every atom, every molecule of our being. There is not a single part of you that has not fallen. That is not part of that. Who's the one that assigns good? Who's the one that gives credit whether something is good or bad? Oh, we do it all the time with each other, but that doesn't count. Not in the heavenly register of the accounting when they open up the book. Who's the one that gives credit? God. And what does he say? All of your deeds are just filthy, stinking rags to me. There's none righteous, not even one. There is no one who searches for God. There is no one who does good, not even one. What do you think Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Is it possible to put a camel through the eye of a needle? It's not, is it? So what he says is, it is absolutely, completely impossible for a rich person to go to heaven. Oh, the disciples got it because the very next question, the very next sentence, well then, who can be saved? What's his answer? With humans, it's absolutely impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And every sin list that Paul lists, don't you know that adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, and the list goes on and on and on. And by the way, you're all on that list. 
Don't you know that they will not inherit the kingdom of God? So we do these grammatical gymnastics with it. Well, it's present tense, so it must be talking about those who practice these things. No, that's not what he said. If you're an adulterer, guess what? No chance. Zero. I was in Mozambique, as many of you know, three weeks ago teaching, and every country that I teach in has its own unique brand of how theology has shaped their belief system. And what that brings with it is uh, inability to understand very well certain parts of the gospel. For example, in Hindu countries, they have no concept of dignity of the human, none whatsoever, Hinduism and Buddhism. And so they don't even have the words or the language or the concepts to make sense of what we take for granted every day, dignity. They don't even know what that means. So part of the exploration in Nepal, for example, is to teach them about that. But in Mozambique, I stumbled across a little bit more this year. Um, they come from a country that has deep roots in animism and voodooism, witchcraft and all that sort of stuff. And so they're terribly afraid, f- absolutely terrified. The witch, the witch doctor has all the power. Along comes Catholicism. Now, many of you are former Catholics, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not at all dissing Catholicism. They bring with it a, a heavier perspective of, of sin and guilt than many of us Protestants have had. And so you match that guilt with this fear, and you have an intense, intensified fear of God. So many of the people, uh, the Christians in the churches, they want to hedge their bets because they're terrified. So they get sick. What do they do? They go to the priest for a blessing. They go to the Protestant pastor uh, to be prayed for, and they go to the witch doctor to have them sprinkle the blood over them. They just they want to cover all the bases. They don't really grasp the concept of grace and who this true God is. And so while I'm having this conversation with them, because we're studying through Romans, um, they have a terrified view of God. They clamp down on grace as fast as you can blink to make sure it never happens. For example, if one of you gets sick and goes to the hospital, they don't have HIPAA laws. So the pastor marches right down to the hospital to talk to the doctor to find out what you did to make sure it wasn't the result of sin. Didn't drink too much, make sure there's no drugs involved, STDs, none of that. Okay? And then you get confronted if there is. If it's a normal cold, I suppose it's okay. I'm flabbergasted by that. I said, wow. They said, don't you do that? I said, well, first of all, I'm not allowed to. It would be illegal if I went down there. They wouldn't tell me anything. They only tell me your name. I have to know your name when I walk in. You're kidding. Well, how do you figure out sin? (laughs) So I said, well, okay. How many of you have sinned this week? That's what I asked the question. 70 pastors in this room, and uh, probably 6 to 10 of them are women. And how many of you have sinned? Not one hand went up. Nobody sinned? I said, oh my goodness. I have worked my life to overcome lust. I haven't been able to do it. How did you do it? And all the women started laughing. Because they know. <laughs> And pretty soon one guy goes, ah, there's two of us. That's, I, wanted to, I wanted to get out the concept of ubiquity. Sin is present in everything. That's hard for us to imagine. Some of you have heard the story during VBS of Mark, back out here in the hallway, picked up a bicycle, tripped, and put it through the window. Of course, the kids love it. And Mark said, you know, Jesus died for that? What do you mean? When I just tripped and put that bike through the window, you know, Jesus died for that too? I said, but that was an accident. You didn't mean to do it. Oh, so sin's only defined when we mean to do it? Now it's defined by motive? 
That's not what the Bible says. There is no one who does good, not even one. That means 100% of every thought, every action, every accident is described by God as sin. That's what theologians mean when they refer to total depravity. Every Christian group holds to total depravity. Where we differ is what do we do about it? Total depravity. It's hard to hear that, isn't it? What are you left with? Absolute hopelessness if God does not intervene. You got two choices. You have no option. It's over. Or God intervenes. That's called grace. That's what grace is. How have we taught you to define grace? Now, how do your kids learn it in Sunday school? What are the slogans? What are they? You remember from Sunday school? I know it's a long time ago for some of you. Unmerited favor? Right? Anybody have any others? Wow, the first congregation, first service had several. You guys must have been pagans as young kids, huh? You didn't really go to Sunday school, did you? We teach our kids, and this is all right, all right? It's a blessing, it's unmerited favor, it's a gift from God, that's all true. You see on the coin of mercy and grace, the two sides of that coin are very important. Mercy is when you don't receive what you should receive, and grace is when you are blessed with what you don't deserve. Two sides of the same coin. I mentioned last week, one of my friends, many, many years ago, big, up-and-coming, very powerful Christian leader, sinned in a very public way and uh, was lost all of it. He's now in the backwoods of a, of a third-world country in a village serving Christ, not doing a lot, uh, but he's doing a little bit, a lot in this little tiny village. Had lunch with him recently, and I said, you are such an inspiration, God did not forget you. And he goes, I know, he should have. That's the reality. He should have. Because there's nothing to commend you to God. Absolutely nothing. Is that a shock? That's how big sin is. So as Mark says, grace becomes hugelier. It becomes bigger. It's important to understand the concept of sin. Not because it strangles us, but because it allows us to appreciate grace. That's why. It allows us to appreciate what God gave us. Something absolutely incredible that defies logic. It defies our minds. It defies our understanding. It's so big. So big. So we could talk about grace from a lot of different aspects. We could certainly talk about it from salvation, which I did that. In fact, I'm just going to read to you part of Romans because this is important just to kind of give you a sense of how the Bible consistently argues. It's in Romans 3, those famous verses about there's none who does good, not even one. He quotes all these Old Testament passages to make that argument. Okay, He put that there first so that he can make this next statement. 
This is Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, that means it's not through the law. You don't find Christ by keeping the law. In fact, it's the opposite. You typically lose Christ. That's what the problems with, in Jewish history was. You lose perspective of the Messiah when you try to keep the law. And so he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe because there's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And God's perfection, his standard is absolute perfection. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are justified freely by his grace. All of you are declared not guilty by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So he put that whole argument in there and two and a half chapters of what sin is all about. Not to discourage you but he could get to the truth about how good Jesus is. You see what the Bible does? It presents the standard. And the standard is absolute perfection. That's the standard, which nobody meets. Not a single human. That's the standard. Okay? Christ said, if you look after a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery. You hate your brother or sister, you've already committed murder. It's already done. So what he's doing is he's giving us the absolute standard, and Paul is doing the same, which is perfection. That way we can understand clearly what grace is about. How fantastic this God is. That's why it's called the good news. That's what gospel, the word gospel means. You could take out the word gospel and put in good news. The good news that we believe as evangelicals is that God loves this entire creation. Every single human, animal, plant, rock, you name it. And what was his promise to Abraham? I'm going to bless all the nations through you. That's the good news. The people the world over, God cares about every one of them. There's not a single person that God doesn't care. But he gives us freedom. He gives us freedom to reject him. But that doesn't stop him. You see, he's the master at winning over hearts. He goes after everyone. There's no statistical advantage to being in the United States and hearing about Christ over African nations because God cares about every single human and he's going after everyone. And as he says in the Old Testament, if you search for me, I will be found by you. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1. Every human is without excuse because we have the core knowledge that it takes to believe that there is a God out there. And we can begin the search if we want to and we will find him. That's a guarantee. That's called grace. So when you begin to look at this concept of grace, the natural result is, why would we not be generous? Why? We find the word grace when it comes to, sin, to uh, uh, suffering. Philippians 1. For to you it has been granted. That's the English word granted. We don't have an English word for grace, but it's the verb of grace. For to you it has been graced. 
not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for his sake. You know, when I lost my wife, my faith grew. It just shot through the roof. Was that grace? It wasn't very fun to raise a young, uh, two young children. I've joked many times when I see Judy again, our first words in heaven are not going to be pleasant. <laughs> I got the short end of the stick. But my faith skyrocketed. That was grace. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be defined as negative. That's our tendency. You can win the lottery, win lots of millions of dollars. Trust me, your faith is going to be tested. Because grace is this. Grace is the active involvement by God to transform you into the image of his son. That's free. That's what grace is. It's not just giving you a gift and walking away. It's giving you a gift in a very engaging kind of way. That's what it is. And so the bigger grace gets, sin, you begin to define it differently. You know what sin is? Sin is simply God's identification of what's going to hurt us. What did he make us for? He made us for joy. That's what we're made for as humans. We're not made for tribulation, stress, trial, all that. We're made for joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Okay, now all of a sudden we're tapping into the difference between us and the world when we give. We begin to experience something that the world does not experience, a much deeper, more authentic joy. And all sin is is an obstacle that prevents you from getting there. That's all it is. Is it big and important? Yes, it is, but it's an obstacle. So you see, when you turn to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Your natural movement from now on is toward Christ, toward true humanity. You begin to, uh, you begin to be more affectionate, more giving, more kind, more loving, and you begin to experience joy at deeper and deeper levels. That's one of the advantages of being a Christian you begin to experience all that. And sin is something that stops it and gets in the way. It blocks it. So it's an act of grace that God defines sin. Simple illustration. I have a four-year-old. He's getting ready to run out in the street. I say, don't do that. You're going to get hurt if you run out in the street. If I don't tell him anything, is he still going to get hurt? He is, right? So therefore, it's an act of grace on my part to say, don't do this. Alcoholism. If God had never called it sin, would it still be destructive? It would be, wouldn't it? So therefore, it's an act of grace that, says, that God says, this is sin. Don't do it. You will not like the results. So sin is an act of grace on, act of grace on God's part to identify what's going to stop us from moving in the direction he wants us to move, which is towards deeper joy. That's what sin is. Don't be afraid of sin. Analyze it. Confess it. Humble yourself. Come forward. Let's talk about it. Okay, I rarely talk about it from up front. Elders ask, where do you deal with sin? In coffee shops all week long, talking to you people. (laughs) When people come to me and they're not happy, that means there's sin in the way. Let's figure out what it is that's that obstacle that's causing that blockage. And let's begin the journey of putting it aside. That's what grace is. Grace is the active involvement by God in each of your lives to bring about true redemption, transformation, so that you begin to move where he really created you to be, joyful, life-giving. 
That's what grace is. It's free. He comes after us. He pursues us. Why would we not, why would we not be generous? Why would we not be that way? So guess what he defines? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. One more story. When I was vice president of advancement at Denver Seminary, I got to fly all over the country and meet with wealthy people that gave to the seminary. So I met with a guy. His front door was worth more than all my cars put together. A lot of money. Lots and lots and lots of money. And I asked him, why do you give to the seminary? And his eyes filled with tears. And he said, God made me to make money. I've built 13 companies and sold them. The last company, one of the big investment firms, invested a billion dollars into his company. You would know the company if I told you. God made me to make money. That's what I do. I I just touch it and it turns to gold. He said, but I don't know how to do what you do. So I put my money in the seminary because you're training men and women like Mark to do this. So you know what his first question is when we sit down? Tell me how the graduates are. Tell me some stories of the graduates. What are they doing to serve Christ? Where you put your money is where you put your heart. Your heart follows. See how God's trying to protect you? You start putting it in new cars, new houses, bigger houses, more houses, things like that. And guess what? Your heart follows it. And you become more anxious. And you want more. And you want more. You start giving it to people who are needy. And you start feeling joy and blessing and freedom. Because God says, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. I will take care of that. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless those who don't know me. That's how they'll come to faith. See how that works? It's called grace. Grace. So why are we generous? Not because of a command. We're generous because of God's incredible love to us to bring about life. That's why. That's where I've come in 40 years. That's where I've come. Without God's grace, I have nothing. With God's grace, I have everything. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for that sacrificial love. Love that's so powerful, so redeeming, so loving, so kind that you transform us so that we can experience what you want us to experience. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to make that grace possible in our lives. Continue to help us, Lord, to be gracious people by that generous people with everything that we have that you've given us. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. And as I say,